Our God is indeed a great God. Amen? Amen. Nick, Debbie, Diane, thank you so much for leading us in worship this morning. Church, it's good to hear you sing. It's good to worship the Lord together. I want you to open your Bible this morning to the Gospel of John chapter 2. The Gospel of John chapter 2. And look at verses 13 through 25 as I preach to you this sermon, A Clean House. John 2, 13 through 25. Still hear a few pages ruffling, so I'll give you another moment. All right, if you found your spot, say, I got it. All right, sounds like most of you. The rest of you will get there soon, okay? Here's the main idea I want to share with you from within this text. Jesus resides in a clean house. Jesus resides, Jesus lives, he dwells in a clean house. And please know that I am not just talking about the church building that we're meeting in today. Right? Thankfully, we've got some wonderful people like Rob Anderson and Wayne Fair who keep the place clean for us. But I'm not talking about the visual cleanliness of a brick and mortar building. I'm talking about the spiritual cleanliness of the place that God inhabits. We're going to break this passage of Scripture down into three parts to better understand the truth that Jesus resides in a clean house. Let's take a look at the first part of this story, the temple of the Jews, in verses 13 through 17. The Bible says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. The temple of the Jews. Let's talk just a little bit about this bizarre sounding story. Why in the world did Jesus chase people out of the temple with a whip? Here's why. Jews are descendants of the tribe of Judah in the nation of Israel. If you ever wondered where that designation came from, now you know. A Jew is a descendant of the tribe of Judah. The most important holiday of the year for the Jews was, still is, Passover. In the time of the New Testament, Passover was celebrated by most Jews by them traveling to the city of Jerusalem going to the temple, or being in in the vicinity of Jerusalem. During the celebration, each family would select an unblemished lamb, the best of the flock, a year old, 
on the 10th day of the month. And then slaughter it on the 14th day of the month. They would then feast in celebration of God's deliverance that he had brought to their forefathers when he had taken them out of slavery in Egypt centuries ago. As the book of Exodus records in the Old Testament, Pharaoh had refused to let the Israelite slaves go free. Even after Moses had come and said, God says, let my people go. So the Lord performed nine miraculous signs to demonstrate his power as the one true God. After each of these miraculous signs of judgment that are most often referred to as plagues, Pharaoh would say, okay, fine, fine, fine. If God will take the punishment away, I'll let his people go. And as soon as the judgment was removed, Pharaoh very quickly changed his mind and said, no, you can't go. Finally, God said after nine of these plagues that he was going to send one more plague. A plague so severe that there would be mourning and grieving, weeping and wailing in every house throughout the land of Egypt. And that this time, Pharaoh would listen. And he would let the Israelites, God's people, go free. God sent an angel of death throughout the land of Egypt to strike the firstborn son in every Egyptian household. But before God sent this death angel, he told his people, the Israelites, that if they would take an unblemished one-year-old lamb from their flock, the best that they had, and set it aside and slaughter it, and then place its blood over the doorpost of their house, that when the angel of death came, the plague would not affect them. The angel would pass over their house, sparing their son. Thus we get the term Passover. A lamb was sacrificed so that the son might live. During Jesus' day and time, the city of Jerusalem, where the temple of God was, filled with Jews from all over the place to worship at Passover. There were people everywhere. And for those who had a business mind to make money, throngs of people meant tons of profit. Some of you are thinking this is kind of the same thing too, right? Some of these guys went, man, if there's people all over the place, this is the best chance we've got to make money. So some merchants had set up within the temple complex, selling various animals for sacrifices. And there were others who had set up tables for money exchange for foreign travelers. Prices were high and fees were large. And when Jesus put his own two eyes on this racket that was taking place, he had enough. He took a whip and threw them all out of the temple grounds. I don't want you to get the idea that Jesus beat people with this whip. Or that he was just overly cruel to these animals, okay? Um, it's amazing at our house, sometimes the, the screams and the running that ensues is more from just the threat that one of our kids is going to hit the other one than actually hitting them. 
But Jesus wasn't just throwing a fit for no reason. He was chasing people out of a place that they were doing something wrong. He dumped out coin collection and overturned the tables of the money changers. They had made the temple of God, the earthly house of the heavenly father, into a marketplace for their own profit. As King David foretold in Psalm chapter 69, verse 9, zeal for the Lord's house overcame Jesus. Jesus was not riotous or rude with this action. He was righteous in exercising his anger. After all, does not the Son who inherits the Father's house not also have the responsibility and the right to chase out of his Father's house those who are doing things the Father would not approve of? If you think about it rightly, it's no wonder that Jesus was consumed or eaten up, as our English translations say. Many of the animals that were being sold would most likely be offered for sacrifice. The sacrifices that were performed at the temple were meant to be symbolic of the ultimate sacrifice that Christ himself would make on our behalf. The Lamb of God would die on the cross. His blood would be shed to take away the sin of the world so that whoever believes in Him would not perish but would have everlasting life. When the people were paying money for these animals, it was like a personal affront to Jesus Himself. It would be like someone coming into your house, taking a personal, prized possession that meant something dearly to you, selling it out from under you without your permission, and then keeping the profit for themselves and flaunting what they had spent this money they had gained on while living uninvited in your guest room. You understand why Jesus was a little upset now? This was the house of God where the Father was to be honored through the foreshadowing of the messianic sacrifice. But instead, the Father was disregarded and the sacrifices that were types of the Christ to come were made into a mockery. Jesus resides in a clean house. So he drove them all out. And that brings us to the second part of this story. The body of Christ in verses 18 through 22. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. It's important to note that not all of the Jews were upset at Jesus' cleansing of the temple here in John chapter 2. They did not say, you can't do this. But rather asked the question, what sign do you show us 
since you do these things. You know, some of the Jews that came to worship at the temple may have been thankful that Jesus chased out of the complex those who were trying to profit off of God's glory. But they wanted to know if Jesus would prove his Messiahship publicly by performing a sign. In other words, who's authorized you to take this action? Keep in mind that all throughout John's gospel account, the miracles that Jesus performed are not called miracles. John calls them signs. They are signs that point to the person of Jesus. That is, the miracle is meant to give a message. As Adrian Rogers quipped years ago, we are to believe in the miracles, but trust in Jesus. The signs were not what was ultimately important. The Savior that they pointed to is what was of utmost importance. And these Jews wanted a sign. It's also important to note that Jesus did not refuse to answer their question. Do you notice that? They asked for a sign, and he foretold of a sign that he would give to them. In the Gospel of John, Jesus' first personal public prediction of his death and resurrection is right here at the beginning of his public ministry. Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews who asked for a sign were flabbergasted by this response. Because they knew it had taken their forefathers 46 years to build the second temple. They had built it under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua with the help of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to kind of spur the people on to complete the task. They did not realize that Jesus was talking about his own body. They thought he was talking about building in Jerusalem. Let's think about what Jesus was saying. Did you know that the body of Jesus is the temple of God? Listen to how the Apostle Paul stated it in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in Him, that is Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The Father and the Spirit lived in and through Jesus while He walked this earth. God was in the midst of his people as Jesus dwelt among them. John chapter 1 verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. What is so amazing about Jesus' remark here is that he knew exactly what he was talking about even though no one else did. He did not say, I will destroy this temple. In three days I will raise it up. He said in the imperative second person, You destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. The holy irony is that three years after these very same Jews demanded a sign that Jesus prove himself as Messiah, they also demanded that Jesus be crucified just as he said they would. He told them, you're going to destroy this temple, but in three days I'm going to raise it up. 
It's exactly as he said. And three days after his body, the temple of God, was broken for us on the cross, he rose to new life. This is the core message of Jesus' life and ministry. Christ was crucified on the cross for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and on the third day He rose again, according to the Scriptures. When Jesus died on the cross, He became sin on our behalf. Just as the priest would take His hands and lay it upon the head of the animal that was to be sacrificed, as a sign that the animal was to bear the punishment for the people's sin as a substitute. So was placed upon Jesus when He was on the cross the weight of our sin and the wrath of God for our sin. The pure, spotless Lamb of God became the dirty, filthy sin-bearer in order to cleanse us from unrighteousness. And when He rose again from the dead, He had already made atonement for our sin. And He re-inhabited His old body that was transformed into a new and glorious body. In verse 19, Jesus was foretelling the greatest miraculous sign that He would perform in His entire ministry. Namely, His resurrection. As proof that He was indeed the Christ the Son of God, who had the authority to cleanse the temple building in Jerusalem. Jesus resides in a clean house. And that brings us to the third part of the story in verses 23 through 25. The heart of the believer. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. During this Passover feast, many people came to believe in Jesus because of the signs that he did. This might refer back to the first sign he performed, turning the water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. This could refer to some healings, some other miracles that Jesus performed in Jerusalem at the Passover. There were many signs that John didn't record in his gospel account. In fact, John would later on say in his gospel, if I were to write down everything that Jesus did, the world itself could not contain the volumes that would be written. Even though many came to believe in Jesus, in a sense, at that Passover feast, evidently when these people believed in Jesus, it was not genuine faith from their heart. In other words, they thought admirably, admirably about Jesus. Maybe they thought, man, he's a good teacher. Maybe he, he can stand up to the man. He can do things that we've not seen anyone else do before. They knew there was something different about him. They respected him. They admired him. But they did not fully surrender, truly trust, totally commit themselves to Jesus. There is a kind of faith that saves, and there's a kind of faith 
that let's just be honest, it stinks. James calls it a dead faith. Faith that is without works. Faith that is without true trust and real obedience. Stinking faith tips the cap to Jesus as a sign of honor and respect. But saving faith bows the knee to Jesus in humility, begging for redemption. Saving faith means that a person turns away from sin and totally trusts in Jesus. Stinking faith is when a person nods to Jesus like they understand what he wants them to do, but they would rather keep holding on to their sin instead of letting it go. The verb commit in verse 24 is the same verb that is translated believe in verse 23. I mean, you can almost read it like this. They believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. That might offend you at first, but isn't it always true that Jesus knows the condition and the state of our heart? He knows when we're just giving lip service and when we're truly giving our lives to Him. Some other English translations of the Bible say that Jesus did not entrust Himself to them. Why would Jesus do that? The answer is given in verse 25. Jesus knows who has real faith in him and who's just playing the game. He knows who is authentic and he knows who's artificial. And he will not abide in the heart of a person who has not truly, totally given their heart to him. The real temple in which the Lord Jesus longs to reside is the heart of his people. Do you understand that? Why do you think Moses erected a tabernacle in the wilderness? Why do you think Solomon built a temple in Jerusalem? And Zerubbabel and Joshua rebuilt it after the Babylonians had destroyed it. It's because God wanted to be in the middle of his people. Why do you think Jesus Christ came to this earth? That he tabernacled among men to display the glory of the Father. Because God wants to be in the middle of his people. Why do you think Jesus repeatedly told people to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand? Why do you think Jesus issued the challenging invitation? If any of you would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's because Jesus wants to live right in the middle of your life. Do you know that? Jesus resides in a clean house. So here's the question I want to ask you today. You as an individual, but also you, First Baptist Church, as the house of God. Jesus resides in a clean house. Does Jesus reside in you? Does Jesus reside in you? Are there things in this church that the Father would not approve of? And that if Jesus were to walk in here on his two literal feet would come up and start turning some things over and chasing some people out and getting rid of some things that ought not be here. 
It's not because he doesn't love his church. It's because he does love his church. Jesus wants to live in the midst of his people. So I want to give you this little challenge. You, you as church members, okay? You feel free to do this at any point during this week. You call me, you come by the office, you send me a text message, and you say, Jake, I've been praying about this. And Jake, I really think if the Lord Jesus showed up at our church, these are some things that he would point out and say, we're not doing, that we ought to be doing, or that we are doing that we ought not be doing. Because I want to pray with you about those things as your pastor. Is that a fair challenge? And if you talk to me, you're going to have to pray with me too, okay? Just a fair warning. And here's the second part of this. The only way the church gets dirty is because people bring dirt into it. We are the church, right? I mean, we are. The Lord loves us. But hey, listen, folks. Jesus resides in a clean house. And there may be some thoughts and attitudes in your own heart, in your own spirit, that are not of Christ. And it's time to repent of those things so that Jesus can truly be the Lord of your life, that you named him to be a long time ago when you got saved. There may be some things that you've said that in order to be cleaned up, you don't just need to ask the Lord to forgive you, you need to go and ask someone specifically, will you forgive me because I said this to you? There may be some things you've done to somebody else and you need to go to that person and you need to say, listen, I was wrong. I want the Lord to clean up my life. Will you forgive me for doing this and this? Jesus resides in a clean house. Do you want Jesus to live in your life? I want him to live in mine. Do you want Jesus to live, to reside, to dwell in this church? I do too. And he wants to more than anything. So folks, instead of playing the game, let's totally and truly turn away from our sin and trust in Jesus. Let's let him clean us up from the inside out so that he can live in a clean house.